Hallelujah. Give him all the praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord, we bless your name this morning. We thank you that in again this hectic time, we can take a few moments and we can settle our hearts in the King of kings and in the Lord of lords. We thank you that you came as a child so that you could be tempted at all points just like we are. But we thank you, you are no longer a child. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And by faith, we praise you today. We may not see that in its fulfillment yet, but we hold fast to it. You have promised it, and the promises of God are yes and amen. And so by faith, we carry on encouraging one another to not grow weary in doing well, for we will reap if we faint not. Thank you for that hope we have. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everyone said amen and amen. Come on, one more time before you're seated. Give the Lord all the praise in this house. Bless the Lord. Good morning, everyone. What a mighty God we serve. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and tell him you love him in Jesus' name. Bless the Lord. For those of you that are just joining us, first let me welcome all of you again. So glad you took some time to be with us today. But over the last few weeks, we have been in a series that we are finishing today that we have simply called His Wonderful Life. And again, it is just a play off the holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life, which I've shared with you over the last several weeks is our family's favorite Christmas movie, and we always look forward to sitting down as a family and watching it together. You know, a couple in the church recently bought us tickets to the Pittman Theater's production of A Wonderful Life. By any chance, how many of you got a chance to see that? Is there anyone here? Just a few of you. Um, Let me just say this, that as far as a production is concerned, it was really good. It was um, well acted. The music was good. The singing was really good. Um, but, and I can say this because the people who bought us the tickets felt the exact same way. If you're a purist and you really love the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it was a bit of a disappointment because of the departure that it took from the original story. Now, the alterations within it were slight. I mean, certainly if you were familiar with the story, you'd go in and know that it was based on It's a Wonderful Life. But as slight as those alterations may have been, my fear is that it would leave someone who had never seen the movie um, with the wrong impressions of many of the original characters, namely George Bailey, the star of the show. If you had never seen the movie and that was all that you saw was the production, probably would have left you thinking that George was not always the nicest of guys. And, and you know, just again, for a purist like me that loves that movie, it was a little concerning, even though we are talking about a fictitious character. Now, as I thought about that in the few hours after the presentation was over, I thought to myself, in many ways, that actually represents one of the greatest concerns that I personally have 
with the current direction that Christianity is taking in the United States. Um, I am very concerned, I have to tell you, that the slight alterations that we are beginning to see with the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ has given many unsuspecting listeners the wrong impression concerning the God that is revealed in Scripture and the Word that He has made very clear in those same Scriptures. Paul said something very interesting, if not shocking, in the letter we know as 2 Corinthians that I believe is worth noting at this moment. In 2 Corinthians 11, in verse number 4, the Apostle Paul says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it, or you will tolerate it. That you will actually become so wore out by the spirit of the age that you will tolerate a gospel that is a departure from the original. Now, I think these are some of the most sobering words in all of Scripture. Because Paul not only warned that in the last days there would come those preaching another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel, but that overall these fraudulent and even idolatrous mental images and messages would be tolerated by the professing church of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, we are seeing that today. We are seeing a different Christ than the Bible speaks of portrayed in American pulpits. There is a different spirit that is being introduced to multitudes, and there is an entirely different gospel that is being preached. And this shift has been occurring for, I would say, over the last 20 to 30 years. But the shift has occurred so slowly, so gradually, so incrementally that only those who have taken the time to test the spirits to see if they are of God can actually discern the times that we are living in. We are now living in a time when we have a Jesus who loves but would never judge a spirit who only comforts but would never convict, and a gospel that coddles but never confronts sin. We now have a heaven without a hell, we have salvation without repentance, and we have grace without holiness. And it is by and large Christians who are buying into this foolishness and following this falsehood into eternity when too late they will discover that this message they have bought into is absolutely powerless to save them from the judgment that is at hand. We are living in a terrible time. Yes, I know it's Christmas, but I am preaching what the Lord has placed on my heart today. I want to I share with you a scripture that has been on my heart for the last several months. I've been mulling this around, and I'm just going to share it with you today. It's in Jeremiah 5 and verse number 30, where God's speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to his Um, beloved Judah says an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power or their own authority, which God is saying, I didn't send them. They appointed themselves. They sent themselves and my people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? Now what he was saying through the prophet Jeremiah is what is happening in my nation, 
the nation of Judah is horrible and it is astonishing to me. Because your prophets are prophesying falsely. They're prophesying whatever comes into their mind. And the priests are ruling by their own authority. I didn't send them. They're not representing me at all. And you love to have it so because you're hearing what you want to hear. You're not hearing a message of repentance. You're hearing a message that everything is going to be okay. And even though you love it that way, what are you going to do in the end when judgment finally comes? Because you have trusted in a false message that will not prepare you for the coming judgment. And can I tell you what happened thousands of years ago is happening right now in 2018. We have become a people hungry for an accommodating message, a message that will accommodate the life that we want to live, the commitment that we are comfortable in making, and the sacrifice we are comfortable in offering. And false teachers and false pastors are more than willing to oblige that spirit today. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians Timothy chapter number four, that in the last days, men and women will no longer tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own lust, their own desires, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears or teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. What is striking there is that he says they will heap to themselves these teachers, which means that there will be an abundance of false teachers in the last days. In fact, it will be easier for you to find false teachers in the last days than it will be to find genuine men and women of God preaching the word of the Lord. And God says this is an astonishing and horrible thing that is taking place. Because even though you love hearing those messages, what are you going to do? in the end? What will you do when you find out that it was false? That it was powerless to save you, to heal you, to deliver you, and you will not discover that until you're standing before God and it is too late to reverse this condition that you are in. Can I tell you folks, that may be the spirit of the age, but that is why we preach the way we do. That is why we pray and fast the way that we do. That is why we disciple the way we do. I can tell you right now, we will never be the coolest church in town. We certainly will never be the hippest church in town because I still like wearing suits and ties from time to time. But by the grace of God, we will always seek to preach the unadulterated word of the living God because judgment is coming one day and we want you to have a message that will save you from it. We will preach because one day there is a crisis coming. There's a catastrophe coming. There's calamity coming and the doctors will not be able to solve it, the counselors will not be able to figure it out. The psychologists and psychiatrists can't diagnose it, and the financial planners can't strategize for it. And you're going to need help from another world. And I'm going to tell you, there is only one that can save you. There is only one that can heal you. One who can deliver you, and his name is Jesus, and we preach him, and him alone, in his mighty name. Can somebody give God the praise for that? Come on, somebody magnify the name of Jesus Christ this morning. 
I want you to hear it. We are committed to preaching Christ and Him crucified. And we know going into that, that many are going to find it foolishness. Many are going to find it scandalous and offensive. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. No, it doesn't matter if we are laughed at and scorned. We will preach Jesus Christ, Him crucified, so that men may be saved in His mighty name. Can I tell you this morning, that is what Christmas is all about. God came down. It wasn't just about a baby being born. It was about God invading the world that had long sat in darkness and in sin and error pining. But He appeared and the soul felt His word. It is about God coming to the rescue of rebellious man. I'm telling you, like Pastor Josh said last week, all other religions are man trying to get to God. But Christianity is about God coming down and helping man. Can we magnify the Lord for a moment here that God vacated heaven to come here to help us in Jesus' mighty name. You know, as I have said in It's a Wonderful Life, there is angelic intervention. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. But it turns out that George Bailey's guardian angel was nothing more than a mere mortal man whom, after passing away some 200 years earlier, had still not received his wings. He was sent on a mission to convince George to live, and Clarence was hoping that in doing this, he would finally earn those wings he longed for and would no longer be an angel second class. Well, it makes for a good story, and certainly Clarence, if you've ever seen the movie, is a likable fellow But I'm going to tell you it's not real. It's not for real life. It's not for real crisis and real pain. When we face life, we need power from on high. Now listen, I believe in angels. The Bible speaks of angels. And I am thankful for the many times, and only God knows, when angels have actually been sent by God to help us. You know, the scriptures tell us that we've entertained angels and didn't even know it. And so we know that angels from time to time do come to us. But can I tell you, they're not fictitious, nor are they former mortals. Angels are created beings. In fact, they were created before heaven and earth were even created. And all throughout Scripture, angels are seen as those who protect the glory of Almighty God. But according to Hebrews 1, they are also ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So the Bible makes it very clear that if you are inheriting salvation through Jesus Christ, angels are at times dispatched by God to give aid to you. And at various times we see that in Scripture. We see angels assisting Lot and his family out of the city of Sodom. Angels came to Daniel when he was in a time of great distress. Angels came to Joseph and Mary to announce the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. They even ministered to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness. And again, angels assisted Jesus after he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. Angels even helped Peter in his escape from prison. I don't know if prisoners should lean on that verse, but they certainly did happen. But can I tell you, Christmas is not about God sending angels to help us. It is about God coming to us to help us. And I am thankful. 
thankful that one day the Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that He could deliver us from our sin and walk through us in life in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, give Him praise here this morning. Now, in Isaiah 64, and you can start there if you'd like to, but in Isaiah 64, there is an incredible prayer of desperation that was lifted up from the prophet Isaiah. But as powerful as the prayer is, um, in order to really appreciate it, you have to know the context from which the prayer was offered. If you just read the prayer, it will bless you. But if you understand what he was facing when he prayed it, it will help you appreciate the depth of his prayer even more. So this is one of those sermons that you're going to have to bear with me because the context is Isaiah 63. And I'm not going to read every verse in Isaiah 63, but I'm just going to do a jet tour over those 19 verses so that you can get a flavor of what Isaiah was facing when he offered the prayer in Isaiah 61. So you've got to stay with me for a moment, okay? I'm going to probably spend more time giving you the context than I will the prayer, but I believe it'll be worth it. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6 shows Isaiah as he is given a glimpse of the final judgment of Christ that he will render to all of the nations who have collectively rejected him and actually at that time have come out to war against him. We know this as the Battle of Armageddon. If you've ever heard of the Battle of Armageddon, in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, he is dealing with that battle. This is a battle that will occur at the end of the age as we know it. And graphic descriptions are given here of Christ's garments being like the garments wore by those who tread grapes in the wine press. But it is not wine, if you will, that is staining his garments. Instead, it is the blood of those who have resisted him. As he has here in Isaiah 63, in verse 3, he says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. So much for Jesus never judging anyone. I want you to listen to me this morning. There is nothing inconsistent with God's love and with God's justice. Many people think that a loving God would not judge anyone eternally. I would tell you that a loving God would have no other option but to judge the wicked. There's nothing inconsistent with it at all. Listen, we are living in an age of grace, and we have been for the last 2,000 years. God graciously reaches out to all of mankind. All of mankind has the privilege, has the opportunity to come to Jesus Christ and surrender their life to Him. But make no mistake about it, just as God shut the door of Noah's ark and judgment fell upon the inhabitants of the earth, 
One day, God will close this dispensation of grace and those who have rejected Christ as Lord and Savior will be lost for all of eternity. God is just and if you come to Him for asking for forgiveness of your sin and repenting of your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you're rolling the dice today, make no mistake about it, God will have the final word. This same vision was given to John 800 years later when John was on the Isle of Patmos for his faith in Jesus Christ. He wrote about it in Revelation 19, and literally the comparison is stunning. It says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, this again is the battle of Armageddon. And this lies, we know, at some point in the future. We don't know when this is going to happen. It is in the future. We know that it will follow the rapture of the church that then will be followed by the great and final tribulation that will last seven years. At the end of that seven years, the nations of the earth will gather in a valley called Megiddo, and it's there that Christ will return with ten thousands of his saints, and he will put out the rebellion and establish one thousand years of peace upon this earth. I know that sometimes we lose sight of it, but I'm going to tell you folks, more real than the world we live in today is the spiritual world, and one day that spiritual world is coming to this earth, and he shall rule and reign for all of eternity. Can you you say amen to that if you believe it. So this is the first vision that he gets. But within this vision, Isaiah is also given a glimpse of something that is much more imminent. And that is the fall of Jerusalem, the burning up of the temple there in Jerusalem, in the Babylonian captivity. And all of that would occur in about 100 years after the prophecy that Isaiah gave. We read about it in Isaiah 63 in verse number 18. He says, Your holy people have possessed it, but a little while our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. This would not happen in Isaiah's lifetime. This would happen a hundred years after this prophecy. But again in Isaiah 64, in verse number 10, he says, Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. So here is Isaiah. He is waiting upon the Lord one day and he receives a vision of the future judgment of all of the nations that will usher in the final kingdom of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And then within that vision he is given a more imminent vision of the fall of Jerusalem and he sees men and women being deported to Babylon. He sees the temple where they praised God burned with fire 
and the city laying in waste. So you can imagine how overwhelmed he is. But in the midst of his tears, he says this back in Isaiah 63. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He has bestowed upon them according to His mercies, according to the multitude of His loving kindness. For He said, Surely they are My people, children who will not lie. So He became their Savior. In all their affliction, He was affliction. And now He's turning His attention to when... Israel was in bondage to Egypt and God was liberating them. And the angel of his presence, which is a reference to Christ, saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So here he is, overwhelmed with sadness of the future judgment of the nations and then the future judgment of his beloved nation, that being Judah and the fall of the temple. But even as his heart is overwhelmed, he says, but I'm going to mention the loving kindness of our God. I'm going to praise Him. I'm going to think about His goodness. I'm going to think about His mercy. I'm going to think about His loving kindness and how He forgives sin and He brings them out. I don't know what you're facing here today, but can I tell you that there is somehow you've got to rise above it and you've got a way to praise our God through that storm in Jesus' mighty name. Can somebody give God the praise for that? I don't know what you're going through today, but even if it's of your own doing, like Israel, I urge you to remember the loving kindness of God and His mercy and compassion that never fail, but are new every morning. He says, in all their afflictions, He was afflicted. In it afflicts the heart of God when you and I are afflicted. He hears our cry. And I can tell you today that if you repent of any sin and you confess it and you turn away from it, Not only will He redeem you, but He will carry you. He will bear you all the days of your life. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you because our God is a great God. Come on, give Him the praise in this house this morning. So He is overwhelmed, but then He feels good. But then He goes back to being overwhelmed because in verse 10 He says, But... They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. And so just as he starts encouraging himself in the Lord, he remembers. But in spite of the goodness of God, Israel continued to rebel and grieve the Holy Spirit until God had no other option but to turn against them as an enemy and fight with them. He says, you know, they just abuse the grace of God. Rather than being humbled by the grace of God and returning to Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they go right back into rebellion, grieving the Holy Spirit. But no sooner is He overwhelmed with that grief than He says in the next verse, then He remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying, where is He who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of His flock? Where is He who put His Holy Spirit within them? Who led them by the right hand of Moses? with his glorious arm dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name and I got to stop there 
Let me just say this. He says, to make for himself an everlasting name. Now again, he's talking about when the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt. And according to this scripture, the primary reason that God delivered Israel from Egypt was not because they deserved it, but because God wanted to make a name for himself, an everlasting name that was all throughout the the, the land at that time. God did not deliver them for their sake. He delivered them for his glory great namesake. Israel should have been should have stayed in bondage but God is a covenant keeping God and he said I want all men and women in this land to know that there is no God like Jehovah God in Israel. And many of you know that after God opened up the Red Sea and caused them to walk across on dry ground that all the nations of the earth didn't want to mess with Israel because to mess with Israel was to mess with Almighty God. Can I just tell you Every once in a while when God does something great in our lives, we want to take a bow and say it's because of my faith. I'm going to tell you, if you and I got what we deserve, we wouldn't even be sucking wind today. The reason that we are alive today is because of the grace of Almighty God. And God wants everyone in this world to know there is no one like me in the universe. Come on, somebody, give God all the praise in this house. And he goes on and says, Who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. So again, he encourages himself in the Lord. So he's just going back and forth from depression to encouraging himself in the Lord. Depression to encouraging himself in the Lord. How many of you feel like that from time to time? Where you're just battling daily? Well, he did. So get this. Isaiah sees the final judgment of the nations at the end of the age. He then sees the fall of Jerusalem, the temple being destroyed, and people being taken captive. And he weeps over that. But then he remembers God's love and kindness and that it never fails and prays for God to renew that mercy. But then he remembers that in spite of his kindness, Israel rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit and God turned against them again. But then he remembers how he led them by his Holy Spirit through the wilderness. So he just keeps remembering that as bad as it got, the people would cry out and God would hear their prayer. And as he considers how difficult the days ahead are going to be, it brings us to a glorious climatic prayer in Isaiah 64 and verse 1 where he says, Oh! that you would rend the heavens and that you would come down. He says, God, what we're going to be facing in the future is not something we need prophets and angels to solve. We need you to rip open the heavens and come down and shake the mountains in your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence when you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. The significance of mountains is more than just the physical mountain because mountains represented obstacles that could not under any circumstance be moved. What he is simply saying is, God, I've seen the future. It's filled with pain. It's filled with captivity. It's filled with a falling away of temple worship. And I've caught a glimpse of this future and it's terrifying. But then he realized that the only hope was if God himself would rend the heavens and come down and move those mountains as a fire, burn up the adversaries, make the nations tremble and do awesome things. I'm going to tell you, folks, we are facing a similar situation today. Folks, I may not be Isaiah. 
I may not be John, and I certainly do not possess prophetic insight into what is coming, but I'm glad that today I have a more sure word of prophecy. It is the word of the living God, and it does tell me what is coming in the future. Now listen, I know that that, uh, Tuesday is going to be a wonderful day, but right now I want you to consider what the Bible says about the future of mankind. Just in Matthew 24, 4 through 13, Jesus told us that in the days leading up to his coming, deception will run rampant as false Christs rise and deceive many. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be widespread famine. There'll be disease and increasing natural disasters. Jesus told us that before he came, Christians will be among the most hated and consequently the most hunted citizens of the global community. Families will betray one another and they will hate one another. False prophets will lead many astray. Lawlessness and life without restraint will be the rule of the day to the degree that the love of many Christians will actually grow cold toward the things of God. And folks, can I tell you with a broken heart today, we're seeing that in the day that we live in. Just this week, I could have downloaded at least a dozen articles that appeared in secular magazines that show you that we are living in these very days today. And I'm going to tell you, the church going into 2019 had better wake up. And our desperate cry must be, Oh Lord, would you rend the heavens and would you come down upon this planet again in Jesus' mighty name. Our families are divided. Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Our children and grandchildren are lost and are going to spend eternity separated from God. Rend the heavens and come down. We are closing churches faster than we can open up new ones. Rend the heavens and come down. Folks, what we are facing in this hour is going to demand more than angels. It is going to demand more than preachers. It is going to need the power of the living God falling upon us and convicting the hearts of men again. In Jesus' mighty name. And that's what Christmas is all about. It is about God rending the heavens and coming down in a manger, but then confronting darkness and showing that He has power over death, hell, and the grave, and every demonic force in Jesus' name. But it didn't stop there. I don't know if you've ever considered this before. I certainly had never thought about it. But when Jesus died on the cross, there was something amazing that happened. In Matthew 27 and verse 51, we are told, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two, listen to this, from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. God moved the mountains on that day. Now the significance of this is that when Jesus offered his body up to God, that God himself rent that veil in the temple from top to bottom. And the significance of that, if you don't know it, is that from the moment that God removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden after their sin, he had set angels at the entrance of Eden so that man could no longer again go in to that perfect place.
And it was a symbol that man no longer had direct access to the presence of Almighty God. He was separated. And that was vividly portrayed many, many years later when Moses built the tabernacle in the wilderness. And many of you know that from the outer court and even the holy place, they were separated from the holy of holies, which represented the presence of God, by a veil, a large curtain, a very thick curtain, and etched right onto that veil were the images of two angels to remind Israel, you have no direct access to the presence of God. The only one that was allowed to go there was the high priest, and that was once a year on the Day of Atonement. Man was outside of the presence of Almighty God. But when Jesus, our great high priest, died upon that cross and said, it is finished, God rent the heavens and came down. He grabbed a hold of that curtain and he ripped it from top to bottom saying from now on through the living way of Jesus Christ you have access to the Father so that you can obtain mercy and grace to help in your time of need. How many of you are glad that our God has rent the heavens and has come down so you and I may know him? But you know what? That wouldn't be the last time he rent the heaven. Because 50 days later, 120 faithful followers of Christ went back in to that temple, or excuse me, that temple area into an upper room. Because they knew that what had been entrusted to them by Christ, they could not possibly do in their own strength. And they began to wait upon God. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Come on, a sound from where? from heaven. God rent the heavens and he came down. It was like a rushing mighty wind that filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. One sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. God rent the heaven and he came down. But this time not as a baby born in a manger but this time he came as the Spirit living inside of every believer so that God is in us, in this world, to do great things in Jesus' mighty name. You ask me, is his life wonderful? I'm telling you, it can't get any more wonderful than this, that God would come and live in me by the Spirit of his great name. Come on, give God the praise. Everything we're facing in this hour, we can overcome because greater is he that is living in us than he that is in this world. Our government may have shut down, but for all I care, it could shut down for the rest of the year and for the rest of next year because I serve a king who will never be voted out of office. His kingdom will have no end. There'll never be a government shut down of the kingdom of Almighty God. The government is on his shoulders. Come on, folks. Magnify the Lord. He's come down. And He is great in Jesus' mighty name. Come on. Magnify His name here today. Come on. Stand to your feet all over this auditorium. Come on. Lift up your voice. Lift up your hands. Magnify the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We bless your name. We bless your name. Hallelujah. 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 Come on, let the redeemed of the Lord say so today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Hallelujah. I don't want you to leave here with a wrong impression of my Savior, Jesus Christ. He is not a baby 
wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. He is not a suffering Savior on a cross, dying for the sins of man, and that death happening over and over again. He is not a risen Savior only. He is the exalted King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And He stands before all of mankind today saying, Come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest in Jesus' mighty name. That is Christ today. Come on, magnify His name. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. Pastor Kurt just gave you one of the greatest Christmas gifts you're going to get this year. You're getting out of here really early. You know what? You got some time. I'm not going to waste your time. But I think that it would be good for us on the last Sunday of this year. It's hard to believe. If we could just come around these altars, and I know that not everybody can get down here, but if we could just come around and press in, and can we just lift our hands? Can we lift our voices as a family? And can we, could, could we just pray right now? And I don't want you to pray silently. I don't want you to pray quietly. Come on, let's just come down. Press in as close as you can. And can we lift our hands and lift our voices? And as God would...